Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where we bring you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. This week, hear from the wonderful Clemency Burtonhill at Hay Festival 2018. An award-winning violinist, broadcaster, author and journalist, Clemency discusses her book Year of Wonder, which is a personal celebration of classical music for every day of the year. Whether you're a seasoned fan or you're here dipping your toe into new classical music waters, Year of Wonder is there to inspire and delight you. It's very much a kind of personal journey through a thousand years of what I believe to be the greatest music so that everyone can have a daily engagement with it on their own terms. Uh, and hopefully, you know, I can introduce gems and discoveries for people who know it very well. And even if you've never heard a piece of classical music in your life, but you might have heard something on a film that you think you liked and want to know more of, you know, this is for you as well. So I had to do something that I've never done in my whole life, which was build a spreadsheet. Now, no doubt many of you in the audience are dab hands at Excel. That is not me. And it was, it was really a, a sort of terrifying thing for me to have to, to be organized in that way. But I just approached it in this kind of methodical fashion, which was to say, you know, I want to make sure that within each historical period, obviously the kind of leading lights are represented. But once I've got them, I also want to make sure that I'm furnishing them with the undiscovered, with women who've generally been written out of the canon, uh, with composers of different backgrounds from you know, areas that we don't think of as classical music. There's tons of Latin American music in the book. You know, I think we tend to think of that as much more of a kind of you know, a different sound world. And actually, there are some phenomenal classical composers who come from Latin America and the Americas more generally. Um, so it just became a question of just putting it all together. And then, as Peter says, having to be really ruthless about killing my darlings. And this was not easy for me. I would wake up sometimes at kind of three in the morning <gasps> in a cold sweat going, oh my God, I've left out. Ooh, how can I possibly have done that? And this was going on right to the last minute. I remember sending this panicked email to my poor publishers right at the very last minute. Uh, in fact, after the last minute. Typical journalist, always leaving things to the sound of deadlines whooshing past me. Um, but I was going, I can't live, I, I cannot possibly put this book out without these pieces in it. And she was going, I'm really sorry. I've just, you know, it's gone to print. There's nothing we can do. And I remember thinking, oh my God. And then of course it was fine. I, you know, there was a reason why I'd chosen this piece from someone or that piece from someone. And, and what I actually really, really want this book to do is to empower you to know that this is your music too. And what technology enables us to do now is that you will start to work out what music you love and then the technology, the algorithmic gaze, which freaky as it is in some ways, will hopefully furnish you with other things that are a bit like that that you might also like. So, you know, it was very important to me that it wasn't the kind of definitive guide to classical music, but that each month would work as its own playlist in the same way that I put together a radio show on Radio 3, thinking, you know, in any given half an hour, what do I want to say? What do I want people to feel? If, how do I want to go from one piece to the next? Things that you might think of as being really, you know, disjointed in some ways, from a piece of Renaissance polyphony to a piece of contemporary music for woodblocks actually can work beautifully. So it had to work on so many different levels, and it was tremendous fun to do, but it was also... Um, quite, uh, it had its moments. When we say classical music, we are sort of in shorthand saying white men. Yeah. Uh, and the plurality here is, you know, do you come from Vienna or Leipzig? <laughs> so... Salzburg, maybe. Yeah, how do we, how do we begin to recognise that that huge body of work 
travels globally, travels into other cultures, what happens to it when it journeys into um, Eastern orchestral form? What happens, for example, when you have a thrown together, brilliantly commandeered orchestra in Venezuela? How does that interaction between the Western classical canon and the rest of the world work? The magic happens. I mean, for me, the risk of thinking of classical music as being this kind of homogenous entity that happened in, you know, Vienna and Leipzig in the 18th century with white guys in powdered wigs is that we lose so many of these riches. Now, don't get me wrong, there's an awful lot of those guys in the book too, and I could probably easily have done you know, Bach for, every, well, I definitely easily could have done Bach for every day of the year. I could have done Mozart for every day of the year. I could have, even at a stretch, have done Brahms or Haydn for every day of the year. Of course, there's no part of me that's saying that music isn't wonderful, and they crop up, of course, again and again in the book. But what I, I really wanted to do was show the connections between cultures, to show that this, you know, for me, the great miracle is that it's 12 notes, basically. I mean, if you're looking at most of the world, it's 12 tiny little innocuous notes. And from that comes everything. And the way that composers interact with ideas, the way that ideas travel and get in this kind of alchemized way, turned into something completely different that's also the same. The idea that, for me, the idea that there are these kind of sonic building blocks, that there's this DNA from which all music comes, is very powerful. For me, it's like human beings. You know, we are basically all the same. I'm sorry, I, and that's how I feel about it. And for me, I'm not saying all music is the same, but for me, it was really important also to remember that this music is created by human beings. So classical music gets such a bad rap. There's so much cultural baggage that surrounds it. There are all these barriers to entry that, are in my view, are completely false that get erected. And we often lose sight of the fact that behind each and every one of these notes and these pieces is a human being. Now, what do human want? What do human beings want to do with art? They want to connect to other human beings. They want to express something. Perhaps they want to address something. But most of all, they want to connect because you're as important to these pieces as them being written because if you're not there to listen to them, they don't exist. You know, no piece of music sits on a piece of manuscript paper for all time and is, in, is anything. I mean, it has to be you guys too. So that's a very, very inarticulate and long-winded way of saying that for me it was one of the great intellectual stimula stimulations, but also emotional and aesthetic journeys to, to, to be thinking about a sonic wink across generations, a, a hand outstretched across oceans, and you know, that this sort of myriad different forms that we have. You know, the problem with the term classical music is that A, it suggests that it's the opposition to what popular music is. And if popular music is something that by definition lots of people like, then classical music is what can't be popular. Um, but also that it's sort of this very narrow thing that everything has to fit into. And actually what's been miraculous for me over my whole life in music, and I started rather sort of freakishly when I was two, and I'm now quite old, that's 35 years of being immersed in this stuff, um, is, is just, you know, it's sort of, it's multitudinous, but it all comes back to the same. One of the fascinating things that you've sort of introduced in the very first uh, 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 paragraph that you uttered was the resonances and echoes and developments and responses between uh, Satie and Poulenc, between uh, everybody and Bach. Yeah. Um, 
there is a sense not of progress but of just eternal variation mm. isn't there yeah definitely and i think you know i i've included a lot of contemporary composers because again there's this image of classical music as being a sort of museum piece and i really wanted to make the case that it's actually a very dynamic evolving and alive art form and so you take a composer, for example, like Max Richter, who is, um, was born in the late 1960s, very, very active today. Um, your mu his music can be heard in a rave in Berlin or Amsterdam. It can be heard sort of late night on Six Music or perhaps another sort of more alternative music channel. Um, it can definitely be heard on Radio 3. We've played him at the proms. He's published by Boozy and Hawks. His, al his uh, label is DG. You know, it's about as classical as it gets and he for me is a great example of someone who very much sees himself in the lineage of going all the way back to Bach and you know, he still composes on manuscript paper at the piano um, you know pen, pen in hand uh, in the way that, that people have always done but he's equally fluent in evolving technologies he's constantly pushing at the boundaries of what music that kind of plays at the borderlands of what these terms can mean and how music that can sort of incorporate different technology, different electronic sounds as well can be. So he, he, he couldn't be a more respectful practitioner of being a classical composer, whatever that is. And yet there's no part of him that is sort of stuck in any particular box. So yeah, it is a kind of eternal variation. It's in a kind of eternal iteration. And yet at the same time, you know, you know when you hear an original new voice. It is somehow always new. I should just say, here in the room in Wales at 20 past seven, we're being serenaded from outside by this exquisite bird song. And I don't know if anyone who hears this later digitally will, will know this, but one of the joys about all music, but particularly classical music, is that it does represent and reinterpret and... Uh, translate the natural world but part of what it translates is that mating song it's a huge human connection and an invitation yeah. to share isn't it absolutely we are a music making species we always have been i believe fervently that despite the best efforts of our politicians we always will be before we had verbal language we had music we communicated to each other a bit like those birds are doing and we would come together around the fire of an evening after a day's hunter-gathering, and we would tell stories to each other through, essentially, music. And I believe that music really did help us to evolve as a species. It, it, it helped us to understand what it is to be. And this idea that music can't engage with big, meaty ideas, this idea that music is just sonic air, as Bisoni himself once said, composer sort of mentioned that you know that, that that's what it, it can for me it can do so much more than that and we have not only always been a music making species but we've also always been a music sharing species now technology has disrupted music as it has disrupted any other industry that you could care to name except perhaps birds doing their thing um, and in many ways of course that's been negative um, but what I've one of the most positive things, I think, from the technological and digital revolution of the last few years has been this vast opening up of the treasury of the canon. Because previously, you would have had to have had the knowledge and critically the resources to pay for it if you wanted to hear this music. 
And that, in a way, kind of goes back in time. You know, it struck me again and again and again as I was researching and writing the book, this sort of miraculous, obvious fact that in, you know, in the olden days, as my now four-year-old son likes to talk about history, you would have had to have physically got to the place where the music was being made in order to experience it. And then for you know, centuries, you could, if you, had the, if you had it on a gramophone or then a cassette tape or a disc or a mini disc you know, or a radio, you could hear it. And now, of course, if you've got it at the click of a button, at the click of, a, of an internet button, you've got it if you, if you know what you're looking for. And I suppose that was also what this book was about. Can I just spin that out a tiny bit further? Because there's a problem with recorded music. The problem with it is that you can get an idea that some performance could be definitive. And that's a madness, isn't it? Yeah. Because the performance is really what happens between the people in the room. Mm -hmm. And yet we've got, uh, you know, uh, Rattlesmaler 2 or Baron Boim's whatever. Or, and God forbid, God forbid Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations. Yeah, exactly. And Rashid, We're not fans, every time. Really. Um, the, the danger is that you, you have a th feeling as a listener, and I'm a, a civilian in this, I love music and I, I, I listen to it every day, but I don't know very much. But I sometimes am told by people on the radio that this is the greatest recording, and, it, and that's how it ought to sound. But surely the transcription onto staves of a bunch of notes is simply another gift that invites interpretation from Absolutely. I believe that very passionately. There are plenty of people who would disagree and say, well, actually, you know, it, it had to be done like this because this is what the composer wanted. And, you know, I hugely respect um, sort of authentic performance movements. I hugely respect many of the practitioners in there. I think they have, uh, you know, what they do is, is wonderful in terms of adding to a, a sort of multitude of interpretations and of ways of thinking about it. But equally, I so ardently believe that if something moves you, it moves you, and that is valid. And I believe that about the piece themselves, and I also believe that, that about the interpretations. And so the problem with, oh, it's definitive because it's Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations, is unfortunately, for me, that interpretation of the Goldberg Variations does very little to, for me. Whereas there are plenty of pianists who you know, speak to me on a much greater level. Now, all of this is, is wonderful. If you've got the time to, you know, one of my favorite colleagues and I think an absolutely phenomenal broadcaster is Andrew McGregor on Radio 3. If you've got time to build a library and if that's your inclination and you want to have a hundred different versions of, of the same piece of music in your life, then that is fabulous, of course. But in reality, for most people, that's not going to be the way that they encounter or engage with this music. So, is there a problem with recorded music? Is there a problem with the idea of something being definitive? I don't think they're the same question. I think, you know, of course, if you could get everyone to be listening live, then that would be amazing. But in the absence of that, I mean, personally, I couldn't live without recordings because I need the music around me all the time. And also, I think when, you know, in terms of saying to someone, this is it, you know, just press play on your iPod and it's there, um, it's easier to do than to say, you know, get you into a concert hall, especially when, again, there are the, all of these barriers around what it means to go to a concert. I suspect, talking, about, uh, talking at Hay, um, lots of you don't have that trepidation, and you go to concerts all the time, and that's wonderful. 
um, but an awful lot of people who respond to this music, love it, want more of it in their lives, go, oh, but I don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm listening right, and I don't know where to clap, and I'm not sure what I should wear, and all of those things that... What's most maddening about that is that the composers themselves would not recognise any of those concert rituals. And, you know, I'm sure Mozart would have been delighted if you clap between movements. There are... <laughs> sometimes, you know, there are, there are... We know there's evidence of, of, of concerts in, in uh, the 18th century where, where, you know, these supposed bleeding chunks, you know, and, and movement of a symphony there and movement of a concerto there, that we know that's how they also experience the music. So, personally, I mean, I've, I've gone on to a different topic now, but I do think that all of this is united by what I believe is really, really important, which is that we enable and empower people to know that this music is their music too, even if they don't come at it with the education or the musicology degrees or any of that stuff. You mentioned a second ago the idea that uh, music uh, inspired, provoked, uh, brought out feelings. I'm intrigued by the idea that whilst language is what makes us, roots us in our earthy human nature, that music has always been the thing that connected us to the idea of the numinous or the sublime, mm. which is why it's been so spectacularly co-opted by almost every religion that's ever been. Yeah, I, I, there's a, in the introduction, which I sort of lay out my manifesto, as it were, and, and what I'm sort of attempting here, I, I had to sort of mention religious music and um, souls because I had a problem, or I was concerned by my own reaction to sacred music, given that I don't have religion and I would sort of identify as a confused agnostic at best. And I'd say I've occasionally battled with my intensely emotional, even physiological reaction to music, especially that of Bach. Many of our finest classical composers were employed first and foremost by the church. Many composed very specifically to the glory of God. Um, I worried that I couldn't justify my reaction because I couldn't justify it on grounds of faith. But I then went and had conversations with people who uh, are far more um, involved in these matters than I am to sort of to try and wrestle intellectually with what that meant. And I believe that our own interpretations of music music, which, as Peter says, often seems to throw open a window onto the divine, are valid. I say we all have our spiritual touchstones. To be human is to be awe-inspirable. We do not remain indifferent to certain experiences, watching a child be born, a parent die, an ocean at night, a sky full of stars, the birds singing in the Brecon Beacons. We all have a need for enchantment, a capacity for awe, a hunger for wonder, for people of all faiths or none, this music can contain all of that and more. And it sounds rather fanciful to talk about music as a universal language or that there is this kind of universal grammar, to borrow Leonard Bernstein's phrase. But I actually believe that with every generation, with every sort of iteration, as you say, of, this, of these sort of 12 notes, that's what we kind of come back to again and again. And ask any film director, ask any funeral director, you know, what is it that will most heighten and illuminate the message that you want to get across. And invariably, it is classical music. I think we call classical music. And the other argument that I would make is that from classical music comes all other musics. So actually, there's no point in terms of talking about it as classical music. But that, yes, you know, what it comes down to is a way of connecting us in an ineffable way. And of course, 
when it comes to the study of music, you can F the ineffable, you can try and F the ineffable, but I'm not sure that anyone's actually come up with a satisfactory answer to what is it that makes music what it is. And the wonderful Marcus de Soto, who I'm sure many of you know from Hay, who is here now, we have wrestled with these conversations because he comes at it from a very mathematical point of view. Of course, music is physics, obviously. Of course, it's mathematics, obviously. But it's also more, and I feel like my side is still winning, that, you know, in the way that we still can't quite define what it is that makes us fall in love or many other human things, we still can't quite get to the bottom of just what it is, but I would say that it, that ultimately is music's power. I love the idea that all other musics come from classical music, but equally the, the spin goes the other way around, because one of the joys of this book is how many of these tunes are adaptations, developments of folk music in many different, particularly Eastern European and Celtic nations, where great, incredibly intellectually powerful composers have taken a song sung in a tavern yeah. and made glory out of it. Absolutely. Well, you might argue that it was glorious in the first place. I mean... More glorious. More glorious. Different sorts of glory. I came across again and again in the book, and what was so wonderful about writing the book was often I was, I was talking about pieces and composers that I knew inside out. You know, I've been lucky enough to have music in my life all my life, as I say, and for the last decade, I've been blessed enough to be doling out to the nation, either through the proms or radio through breakfast. And so a lot of the times I was, you know, these were stories that I, I was already familiar with, or they were composers, pieces that I knew, and I was coming up against these ideas which sort of made it very easy for me to make those connective tissues, as I was talking about at the beginning. And a lot of that is folk music, as a lot of it is, we know whether it's Grieg or whether it's Rachmaninoff, you know, it's coming back again and again to something that feels really viscerally there. Well, whether it's Wales, I mean, March the 1st, obviously on St. David's Day has to be a, a, a traditional Welsh folk tune. I mean, we, we I think, I feel like again and again I come back to this idea that we are a musical species and that we have had these melodies and that they can pass, they get passed between us, they get converted into other things, they get alchemized into huge... I mean, think of Mahler. You know, Mahler, what he does with folk songs and turns them into these great symphonic canvases is miraculous. But, you know, the respect for that original folk song... I, I should talk, actually, thinking about folk songs, that um, I've mixed you a bespoke... Hey, spring, summer playlist, uh, which will be going up online if you're interested. It'll be on uh, Spotify and other streaming platforms. And there's a fantastic Danish folk song arrangement that's in there, for example. And it's, you know, hopefully that's something that you probably haven't come across before. Um, played and arranged by a fantastic young ensemble, the Danish String Quartet, who I was lucky enough to come across when I was presenting new generation artists for Radio 3. They were on the scheme a few years ago. And those sorts of discoveries, I would never have known what a Danish folk song was if I hadn't sort of been, you know, and, and they comes back again and again, these sort of grammars. In, in broadcasting terms, you have been the face, for as long as I can remember, of the BBC Young Musician of the Year. And one of the things that I know that you feel passionately about is access for young people, all young people, not just people in private schools. Hell no to try and have instrumental training and education and access yeah. from the earliest times. And then they can end up like him, like that fabulous genius of a cellist. Yeah, shaking. Who I still think of as your friend. 
he is my mate. I, I, like, I now like to think of it as my mate, too. So, um, whilst you're yeah. here for writing a book, I would now like you to give us a two-minute political lecture about how we give more children the power of music. You think that can be done in two minutes? Well, actually, we, it can. It can be really simply done. You make it possible for every child in this country to have access to music education. That's, how you, that's, that's what needs to be done. How you do it... I mean, if only... If, I bet every one of us in this room believes that that would be a good thing. Is there anyone who thinks it would be terrible if all primary school children couldn't have access to music education? You need to rephrase that Obviously, question. I'm... Oh, sorry, yes, I'm, I'm very tired. I've got an 11-week-old baby, sorry. <laughs> rephrase, but you know what I mean. Um, it's something that is so obviously beneficial to people, and not because we want to create all, more, many more sheikus, because actually we don't have the infrastructure... Of course, it'd be amazing if there were many more sheikus, um, but we don't really have the infrastructure for gazillions more classical musicians to emerge onto the scene. But what we're talking about, actually, is the making of human beings, not the making of professional musicians. And we don't need any more studies to tell us about the benefits of music education on children on their literacy, on their numeracy, on their teamwork, on their curiosity, empathy, sports skills, everything. We've seen it again and again and again. And yet we have absolute sort of tone-deaf reluctance to enact this in Britain. And unfortunately, what we've done is year on year on year, we've lost more and more and more. So, I mean, the politicians would argue a different way. There are people who have far more sort of clout than I do who are banging this drum. Um, you know, just recently, all of the previous BBC Young Musician winners uh, made a statement backing this idea of music education being a right for every primary school child in this country. I couldn't be more wholeheartedly behind that. I've been lucky enough to see the effects of music education, uh, you know, and I'm not in any way suggesting that we hold Venezuela up as some kind of human rights model that we follow, but the programme of music education in that country is genuinely awe-inspiring, and I've seen it up close, and that is not paid for by the culture purse, it's paid for by the social services budget, because they know the impact that that music education has on those kids who otherwise would be lost in the system, lost to drugs, lost to violence, lost to gang warfare, those kids who are growing up in uh, scenarios that are actually far worse than most of even the most disadvantaged children in this country. But yeah, I believe passionately that this should be a right for everyone, and not because I want to see them all on stage at Carnegie Hall, although that would also be great. That was aim more than two minutes. B didn't answer your question. I'm sorry, Peter, I have failed you. No. I think we have to start thinking really hard, especially in this current climate, which feels so febrile, which feels so antagonistic. I feel like we're losing something really essential in human, in sort of human interaction. And we know that music can cultivate empathy, friendship, society. Just, you, you can't be a musician unless you listen to other people. And I think at the moment what we're really, we're in a sort of listening deficit. I think we're in a sort of empathy deficit at the moment. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join us next week as we hear from actor, director and writer Ethan Hawke. He'll be talking to author David Mitchell about his novel A Bright Ray of Darkness. Before you go, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to share it with friends or give us a rating. See you next time. <laughs>